Go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. We know this as the love chapter in the Bible. And it seems that uh, if you know much about the New Testament or certainly the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, you know that the word charity is used in this chapter and it refers to that agape love, the love that's that's the God-like love. It's Calvary love. It's Jesus kind of love. And here in verse 4, uh, down through verse 8, the Apostle Paul gives us 16 descriptive characteristics of charity. 16 things, 16 aspects, distinguishing characteristics of this kind of love. And just for emphasis sake, look at verse 4. Charity or love suffers long. It's kind. It envieth not. It, it, it vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave itself unseemly in verse 5. It seeks not her own. It's not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all all things. Charity never fails. Charity, love never fails. These 16 characteristics here that are given by the Apostle Paul. And I want you to focus on verse 7 where he says that this kind of love, this charity, this agape love, it beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, and it endures all things. Years ago, I had I was having a conversation with um, our pastor's wife, Mrs. Brenda Patrick, our former pastor's wife. And we were talking about Brother Richard Cordell. Many of you uh, may or may not remember Brother Cordell. Brother Cordell served on our staff for a few years in his retirement years. Brother Cordell pastored, uh, had successful pastorates for a, a number of decades. Just a genuine, genuine man of God. Very influential. Very influential in so many individuals' lives, uh, particularly our former pastor, uh, Preacher Dan Patrick. Very influential for Preacher Patrick. But Brother Cordell um, was a molder of men. Brother Cordell was an encourager. He knew the importance and the power of verbal encouragement. And Mrs. Brenda, in that conversation, made this statement about Brother Cordell. And I've never forgotten it. She said, Brother Cordell had the ability to see the gold in people. He had the ability to see the best in people and to draw that out in them. And when she made that statement, the Lord took that and used that and began to deal with my own heart. So much so that now years later after that conversation, He still, the Holy Spirit still uses those words to convict me. Deep down in my soul, I want to be the kind of person and the kind of Christian 
who sees the gold in other people. I want to be that kind of encourager. I want to be a Brother Cordell. I want to be a Barnabas from the New Testament. I want to be a 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 kind of Christian. I want to see the gold in others. I want to draw out that gold. God says here that true, genuine, agape, Christ-like, Calvary-like, God-like love for other people. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So what does this verse mean? Let's talk about that just a moment. What does this verse actually mean? What does it mean when it says in verse 7 that love, this kind of love, bears all things? Well, Adam Clark said that love conceals everything that should be concealed. It betrays no secret, retains the grace given, and goes on to continual increase. (laughs) A person under the influence of this kind of love, he says, never makes the sins, the follies, the faults, or the imperfections of any person the subject either of censure or conversation. Wow. He covers them as far as he can. One writer said that this phrase, that love bears all things, that it it literally means that uh, it endures without divulging to the world personal distress. It literally, uh, uh, this phrase, bears all things, is said of holding fast like a watertight vessel. So the loving man contains himself in silence from giving vent to what selfishness would prompt under personal hardship. Boy, that's good. John Wesley said of this phrase, that love bears all things. He says, whatever evil this man sees, hears, or knows of anyone... He mentions it to no one. It never goes out of his lips unless where absolute duty constrains him to speak. Philip Doddridge said, This describes a person who is far from delighting to blaze abroad the faults of other people. Wow. I have to tell you, dear friend, I'm afraid that doesn't describe me. I am far too eager not only to hear negative reports about others, but sometimes I'm even far too eager to share negativity about other people. So God said that this kind of love bears all things, and it says it believes. It believes all things. What is meant by this? Well, Adam Clark said that this kind of love is ever ready to believe. Here it is. The best of every person and will credit no evil of any but on the most positive or most sure evidence. One commentator said uh, that it refers to uh, that this love unsuspiciously believes all that it can with a good conscience to the credit of another. It's not suspicious of somebody. John Wesley said it's ever ready to believe whatever may tend to the advantage of somebody else. In other words, if it makes someone else look good, if it 
if it makes someone else feel good, if it, if it again, if it's not wrong, but it, it just puts someone else in a good light. He believes that. Doddridge said that it's this kind of love is unwilling to treat the worst of mankind as the worst of mankind. He treats them differently. Doesn't bring up their faults, their sins, their 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 uh, failures. But it treats the worst of mankind like the best of mankind. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It hopes all things. Adam Clark said that when there is no place left for believing good of a person, then love comes in with its hope and begins immediately to make allowances as far, again, as a good conscience can permit. And further, it anticipates the repentance of the transgressor and his restoration to the good opinion of society and his place in the church of God from which he has fallen. Man, that's convicting to me. A.T. Robertson said that this phrase, hopes all things, that it refers uh, to the fact that it's not gullible, but it does see the bright side of things. Again, it sees the gold. This first means that there's nothing love cannot face. There's no limit to its faith, its hope, or its endurance. In opposition to the true teaching of this verse, it's interesting that Sigmund Freud asserted that this verse promoted a shallow, wishful thinking that was not compatible with the real world. Other opponents of Christianity misinterpret this verse as advocating a life lived with one's head in the sand about real life struggles and issues. But on the contrary, ladies and gentlemen, based on the authority of God's Word, this kind of love sees the ugly reality but still chooses to focus one's attention on the positive. One scholar put it this way. He said that love throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. Linsky said that the flesh is ready to believe all things about a brother or a fellow man in an evil sense. But love, this kind of love, does the exact opposite. It is confident to the last. That's what this verse means. Well, let's notice what it doesn't mean. What is not being said here? Well, this verse, this truth, it doesn't mean that we live life with our head in the sand. It doesn't mean that we don't see the negative in people or see the negative in circumstances. It doesn't mean that we gloss over sin, harmful behavior, or self-destructive patterns. It doesn't mean that we remain silent in the face of blatant personal or spiritual compromise. No. It doesn't mean that we don't confront when necessary. It doesn't mean that we tolerate wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that certainly we as parents, teachers, coaches, leaders, mentors don't correct and don't properly instruct those under our tutelage and influence. And it doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable for their actions. But it does mean that we make a choice to choose to believe the good. We choose to focus on the good. We choose to draw out the good and encourage the good. We choose to believe the best 
about the other person. So how do, how do we apply this verse? This verse does apply in so many areas of life as a person, as a spouse, certainly as a parent, as a friend, as a leader, as a teacher, as a coach, as a mentor, as a pastor. Let me give you four thoughts and then we'll pray. Thought number one. Honest evaluation is helpful and necessary, but fault-finding and nitpicking is sin. Now listen carefully. You know this. Jesus never minced words or ignored sin when dealing with individuals, but His Spirit was completely opposite that of the Pharisees. John 8 when the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery was brought to Jesus. It's interesting that there are two options set forth for us, takeaways, as we look at that passage. You and I can either be like the Pharisees and be a bunch of rock throwers, or we can choose to be like Jesus and be a grace giver. Jesus, even though He knew infinitely, perfectly, her sin... He chose to exercise grace and kindness to this sinful woman. Many times I don't do that. I'm convicted by that. Statement number two, when it comes to how we view others, most people, especially our children, students, subordinates, will live up to our expectations and opinions. Let me say that again. When it comes to how we view others, most people will live up to our expectations and our opinions. If you go around telling someone in your life, someone that you have leadership over, someone that looks to you as a mentor, you the parent, you the grandparent, you the older brother, the older sibling, the older sister, you the trainer, you the mentor, you the coach, the teacher, the pastor, the assistant, the deacon, the one held up in leadership, the one out in front leading the pack. If you tell somebody that they're a loser long enough, don't be surprised when they begin to believe exactly what you speak over them. You tell a kid he's worthless, he's trash, he's garbage, he's useless, long enough, they'll begin to believe it. Now, I'm not talking about a false sense of esteem, ladies and gentlemen. I'm simply saying I'm convinced and convicted in my life there is too much negativity that gets spewed around in Christian ministries, in churches, in Christian schools, in youth groups, in homes, in families, in relationships. No wonder our faith and our lives are not attractive to the world. They can't get past how negative we are. And how much we focus on the blunder and failures and mistakes of other people. 
Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. If we speak positive things and encouragement, genuineness, things that build up our children, our spouse, our students at school, our students in our classroom on Sunday morning, the kids on our team, our neighbors, our friends, those that we supervise at work, if we speak positive things and truth to them, and what does that do for them? Oh, but how often do we take the opposite path of negativity? The tendency is to regurgitate just and spew out negative things, hateful, harsh criticism. God help me. Statement number three, negativity and positivity are equally contagious. But one is destructive and the other is constructive. One destroys and one edifies. And each is a personal choice that we make every day. I have to make that choice every day. Am I going to tear down with my words or am I going to build up? Then the final thought. Do this for me. Let's collectively and individually, let's identify the one person right now in your life that you find it difficult to love, difficult to show grace to. Pray for them. Determine. Decide before God, I'm going to pray for them regularly. I'm going to ask the Lord not to change their heart necessarily. I'm going to ask the Lord to change my heart towards them. I'm going to ask God to help me to seek to bless them and to honor them and to lift them up. I saw this lived out in my life in July of 1985. I was at a summer camp an hour and 20 minutes from here, a place called Camp Dixie. And I'm going to be very personal with you right now. My mother, years before, had remarried a man. He was my stepfather. My stepfather was a drunk. My stepfather was unfaithful to my mother. Our stepfather was many times irreverent. He was hateful. It's downright mean. I resented him. My early teenage years, I resented him desperately. And even though I'd gotten saved when I was 11 years old, I struggled with my attitude toward him. I resented him. I did not like him. And I'm sure there was hatred in my heart toward him. Deep-rooted bitterness and resentment toward him. Just for a lot of reasons. I disrespected him because of it to his face and behind his back. I'd get into verbal confrontation with him one time. Uh, I I literally was fearful for my well-being. It got potentially violent. I ran ran out of the house, down the driveway, out into the street. He chased me out of the house. I look back on that and I 
feel so ashamed of that. <clears throat> but at teen camp, that morning in the chapel service, I'm just going to tell you like it is, the Lord so convicted me and got a hold of my heart. Broke me. Man, I was almost 14. I was still 13 and God so broke me that day. I hit my knees at old-fashioned altar and I confessed my sin of bitterness and hatred. I confessed it before the Lord and I genuinely asked the Lord to change my spirit and my attitude toward my stepdaddy. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The Lord did that for me. He changed me. You say, well, did He change your stepdaddy? No. Not then. He changed me. The change in my stepdaddy came about 14 years later. God changed me. He changed my spirit toward Him. He changed my attitude. I began to really, really pray that God would save my stepdaddy. I began to intentionally show gratitude toward Him and respect toward Him. I didn't want to be a hindrance. I didn't want to be a stumbling block in the road to Him coming to Jesus. And I made it a priority to begin to pray very diligently along with my sister and my mom. We just covenanted together to pray for His salvation. And I want to tell you, thank Jesus, that in 1999, some nearly 14 years later, my stepdaddy repented and gave his life to Jesus. And he was a changed man. I had the privilege about six years ago to preach his funeral. And it was an honor. And I look back on that decision, that hot morning there at that teen camp where God got a hold of me. There's somebody in your life tonight that the Lord is speaking to you and saying, "You, it's time. It's time for you to choose love. It's time for you to embrace these principles and to show this, to choose to see the gold in them. May God help us to follow His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You, Lord, for Your goodness and help us to respond in obedience and to be very honest with You and to let You work and move. And we'll thank You for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.